and we've we've covered a number of topics. In fact, I I guess I should get them all listed. So when I try to review, I I don't have to rack my brain to try to think and remember all the topics we've covered. But we've talked about our basis for believing in Scripture. Uh, we've talked about why the reasons why we can trust the Bibles that we hold in our hand today. Um, <clears throat> we've talked about um, the problem of evil, why bad things continue to happen in this world that we live in, even though we believe in a good God who is uh, a powerful God and, and a wise God. Um, number of things we've talked about. Here lately, we've been talking about Bible difficulties, Bible difficulties. And uh, last, let's see, last week, what did we talk about? Anybody remember? We, we talked about inerrancy uh, of Scripture. Are there errors in Scripture? And um, that's, that's an interesting topic, and we took quite a while to talk about that topic. Uh, the short answer is no. There are no errors in Scripture. Um, if you want to hear what else we had to say, you can listen to the audio of that. Um, what I want to talk about for a little, a little while this morning is this. Some people look at the church and look at Christians and say, don't Christians pick and choose what portions of the Bible they are going to pattern their lives after? You know, aren't there some parts of the Bible that we, as far as our practical day-to-day living, we ignore and we don't live out these portions of Scripture. And then there are other parts of Scripture that, uh, that we say, oh, these parts really do matter. And so we try to apply them to our lives. What about that? How does that, how does that work itself out? One thing that we need to understand is that the Bible, while it is a collection of 66 books by 40-some authors written over a period of, I don't remember, a thousand or so years, it's a long time, um, it is also a book that tells one story. It's a book that tells one story. It contains several styles. We talked about this when we talked about uh, inerrancy and, and inspiration. Because uh, the Bible was written by multiple authors, uh, God did not use them as robots where they lost their will and they were like machines writing down God's words as he spoke to them. But God used each of them as individuals, and so they retained their, their style and their manner of speaking so that when you read through the different books of the Bible, you can see different literary styles, different manners of speaking. Uh, in the New Testament, most of it written in Greek. You can tell if you know how to study the original language that some of it is written uh, very, uh, very beautifully, a very uh, beautiful literary style uh, of the Greek language. And others are written in more common 
language. So it's written in several styles, but it is one story and it makes one statement. Just to give a quick summary in in maybe three or four minutes, God's creation brought order from the chaos and confusion that existed in this universe as we read in Genesis chapter 1. Then God made man, Adam and Eve, humanity, and placed them in a garden and told them that they were responsible to rule over creation and to bring more order from all of the creative potential that God had placed in the world. They were given a choice there. That choice was represented by a fruit tree. I've had the opportunity a time or two this past week to ask someone, did they know what the real sin of Adam and Eve was? You see, the real sin of Adam and Eve was not simply disobeying God, but the real sin of Adam and Eve was to choose not to trust God and to decide that they wanted the power for themselves to define good and evil on their own terms. That's what it meant. The tree is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you remember when the serpent came and tempted them, he said, has God really said you should not eat of the tree? And and he said, God knows. You know, the reason God said that is he knows that in the day you eat thereof, you will become like him knowing good from evil. But the reality is, it's simply they took the power that only God should have and chose to define good and evil on their own terms. When they did that, it brought ruin and destruction into this world. Adam and Eve and their children began to look upon each other with suspicion and distrust, and eventually evil and violence came into this world. This continued as humanity grew as a civilization and, and uh, the civilization was further characterized by evil and, and uh, by ruin and destruction and distrust. And, and it grew until, well, you remember the story of Noah and the ark and the flood and God destroyed all of civilization and then he started over again and then uh, again, the same thing happened. Civilization grew, but it only grew uh, more evil and, and more uh, violence until uh, a civilization known as Babylon, all characterized by this, by this evil and violence and distrust. And out of this civilization of Babylon, God called one man to come out with his family to start a new nation, a new civilization. And again, they were faced with a choice. Would they trust God to define good and evil for them? It's interesting, as we go throughout Scripture, we see how the choices continue to grow. With Adam and Eve, it was one choice, don't eat the fruit of that tree. When God began to work with his called out nation that grew out of the family of Abraham, the Israelites, their choice started with ten, the Ten Commandments, and then it grew to a, just a, a library uh, of commands of about 613 laws. And in 
following those commands. And they agreed. They said, yes, we're going to follow your command. And that was, their, that was them demonstrating their choice to trust God to define good and evil for them. But how did that continue to work itself out? Well, the answer is it did not work itself out. The Old Testament summary uh, of the nation of Israel can be, uh, really, if you wanted to graph it out, it would just look like a line going up and down, up and down. God's people deciding that they're going to follow him and, and growing in blessing and prosperity, and then they would idolize the blessings rather than trust in the one that gave the blessings, and they, God would, they would go back down into evil and sin, and, and that's the story of the Old Testament, just up and down, up and down. Until we come to the New Testament. And there we read that when the fullness of time came, that God sent his only begotten Son in the world. And then humanity, through Jesus Christ, again faces a choice represented by another tree, a cross upon which Jesus died. And it is in placing our confidence and our trust in the sacrifice that Jesus made there that we find our salvation and we demonstrate our choice to trust God again to define good and evil for us and not to live it out on our own terms. So you see, friends, basically the whole story of the Bible is simply about God's, uh, is, is about the relationship between God and humanity and our redemption. Jesus said to the religious leaders in John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40, he said to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you will find eternal life. But he said, it is they, the scriptures, that testify of me. The Word, the Old Testament, and the New Testament, though you may not always see it clearly, it is all about Jesus. It is all about the story of God and humanity and redemption. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses that we read to you a few weeks ago, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. What does all Scripture mean? Well, that really doesn't leave much out, does it? All Scripture. And if you think about what the Apostle Paul had when he was writing to Timothy and he said all Scripture, what they primarily had was what we know as the Old Testament. Now, there are a lot of different opinions about how the instructions of Scripture ought to impact our daily lives and how we ought to live them out each day. There are some people who say, and I, I know some personally, I've talked with them. There are some people that say only what's in the New Testament is applicable to us today. If it was not repeated in the New Testament, then it doesn't apply to us anymore. There are others who say, don't you know that we are not under the law, but under grace? We are under a dispensation of grace, and so it doesn't matter what you do. None of the law applies. None of this uh, matters. It's all about love, and, and what usually they mean by love is 
is not what the Bible teaches means by love. So what is it that really matters? Is it true that, you know, since we're not under law but we're under grace, that live it up, enjoy life, do what you want to, because the forgiveness of God applies, God forgives our, all of our sins, past, present, and future. So what you have done doesn't matter and what you will do doesn't matter. It's all forgiven. Is that what that means? No, I don't believe so. You see, some people have gotten the idea that it is totally unreasonable and unrealistic that a Christian would try to live above sin, would try to live a life of victory over sin. However, friends, this is not what the Bible tells us. Jesus himself said when he gave his followers the Great Commission in Matthew 28, he said to, that they were to go into all the world, uh, baptizing disciples, making disciples of every nation, and teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. In 1 John chapter 2, we read there, John uh, the Beloved says, These things I write to you that you sin not. So the Bible seems to indicate to us that it is a totally realistic and a totally relevant idea that we as Christians ought to live a life without sin. So if that is the case, then what, is, what are the parts that are relevant to us when you have those people that want to argue the case with you? Well, what about this and what about that that you know, Christians don't seem to pay any attention to anymore? How do, we, how do we figure that out? Well, first of all, just to give you a little bit of logic, if you will excuse me, I, I, I mentioned uh, uh, a week or two ago a, a logical syllogism and gave you an example of that and and some of you looked at me like a deer in the headlights. And so forgive me just for using a little bit of logic for just a moment. But, but the logical argument for the unchanging nature of God's Word would go something like this. It is based on the character of God. God in His character has something called immutability. He is immutable. In other words, that's, that doesn't mean that he is not able to speak. He is mute. doesn't mean that. It means that he is unchanging and unchangeable. Unchanging and unchangeable. So if the Bible is God's word, it is the record of God's revelation to humanity, uh, if it is God's word, then it too must be immutable. It must, have, uh, it must be unchanging and unchangeable and have an ongoing uh, relevance for us. Now, we do need to understand that as we read the Scriptures, as you read them through from Genesis to Revelation, and you begin to get an understanding of the full story, the big story that Scripture is trying to tell, there is a progression to the revelation that we read about in Scripture. If you will excuse me for using this word, an evolution, an evolving revelation, beginning with Genesis and going through Revelation. 
until we reach the pinnacle of God's revelation in Christ and the completion of the Holy Scriptures. Let me just be real clear, friends. After this, after Jesus Christ and after the completion of the canon of the Holy Scriptures, no new revelation, period. No new revelation. This is it. This is it. God's revelation of himself to humanity is completed in Jesus Christ and in the Holy Scriptures. So then the question would be, if God doesn't change, then why do we have this record of God's revelation that seems to change? Why is there this progressive nature of of revelation throughout the Scriptures? Now, please, I hope you hear me correctly. I'm not talking about a, a... an ongoing revelation, revelation and, and saying that revelation is still evolving today. I'm not saying that. Does everybody hear me? Nod your heads this way. Or say, okay. If there's any confusion about that, please tell me. I'm not saying, you know, because there are people that, that find arguments um, <clears throat> to say, well, you know, certain things that God uh, ordained and God said in Scripture, they, they, they no longer apply to us because the reason doesn't apply and and it's evolving as i've said before the greek word for that is baloney so why is it that the bible contains a a record of god's revelation that seems to evolve over time throughout the scriptures the reason friends is because of us because you see god is the author of creation and of time itself, not the magazine, but time, past, present, and future. And God himself dwells outside of time. He is bigger than time. He dwells in eternity. And so while God is outside of time, we are bound by time, and we have a past, and we have a future, and the civilizations and cultures in which we live change around us, and we change with them. Thus, God accommodates himself to our limitations in a way that lets us grasp the totality of what he wants us to know about himself. In fact, the scripture is clear about this point, that God has spoken in different ways, using different means to different times and peoples and civilizations. Hebrews chapter 1, God who at sundry times... And in various ways has spoken, spoke to us in the past by his prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. That is, in adding my own words, it is the completion of God's revelation. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, the apostle Paul used this phrase. He said, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. <clears throat> So now we have the full revelation of God in Christ and in God's Word. So the big question again is how do we figure out what is relevant today to our daily living right now? Well, the first thing that we do is we interpret. We interpret. Um, Any book in any language, must be interpreted. 
You don't, uh, you don't receive it by osmosis. Wouldn't that be wonderful if you could put uh, a, a book under your pillow as you go to bed at night and it was just osmosis, it would just soak in. And you would wake up the next morning being a scholar of whatever it was you were, whatever it was you were sleeping on. Wouldn't that be great? But no, it, it, it takes work. And it takes effort. And the first thing we, it, we do, we interpret. Now, there are two words that I want to teach you. Some of you know these words already. The first is the word exegesis, and the second is the word eisegesis. The first one, exegesis, is a good word. We need that word. This is how we interpret Scripture, by using exegesis. And essentially what exegesis means is that we allow the Scriptures to control our understanding of what it says. And we pull out of, the, the word exegesis is based on a word that means out of. And we pull out of the, what, the material that we're reading, the meaning that is supposed to be there. The second is a no-no. That is a word that we want to stay away from. And an example uh, of eisegesis, eisegesis is the opposite of exegesis. Rather than reading out of the text what it means, you read into the text what you think it means. Or you impose your ideas upon the text. Here's an example of eisegesis from Revelation. I hope nobody gets mad at me. Revelations chapter 8, if I can find my bookmark. Revelation chapter 8 and verse 13. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Whoa! Woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. This is an example of eisegesis. If you've been around, if any of you, some of you remember uh, the days of the Cold War very well and communism. And, you know, I remember hearing people who had, they figured out who the bear, the, you know, the bear from the north was going to be Russia coming down and all of them. They had China. They knew who China was and all of these, by all of these figures and symbols. Now, there are figures and symbols in Scripture. But people, we need to be very careful about reading into Scripture a meaning that the original writer never intended. And some might argue, well, didn't God know, you know, that the United States was going to be represented by an eagle, and so he could impart that or, you know, instruct? Well, probably, yes, God knew, but the original writer of this had none of this in mind when he wrote this. But there are people, well-meaning people, who will try to read into the Scriptures these things that say, well, you know, the United States is represented by an eagle, and so this must be, maybe this is one of the places where the U.S. figures into, you know, end-time events and all of that. That's a no-no. 
You don't impose your own ideas and your own understanding over top of the scriptures and say, well, this must be what it means. That's, we, that's eisegesis. We don't want to do eisegesis. We do exegesis. We pull out of what it means. And so, in other words, what we do is we ask a few questions as we read the scriptures. What is the historical context? In other words, what was going on when, when this was originally written? What was the historical context? What were the author's intentions? What did the author intend to communicate? And then third, how would the original audience have understood what they were reading, what they were receiving? <clears throat> now, let me just pause for a moment and tell you this is a this is a deep deep topic that we are barely scratching the surface of and so um, you know first thing I, I don't want any of you to be discouraged you're, you're saying pastor do I have to you know be some kind of a scholar and have a library full of books in order to uh, to, to read and understand what the Scripture uh, is, is saying to me, what God's Word is to me? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we need to, to be careful, and the more you learn and apply to your lives, the better off you are as a student of God's Word. Paul said to Timothy, study to show yourself approved, a workman, rightly dividing the word of truth that needeth not to be ashamed. So think about these things. Say, Pastor, where can I find this information? If I want to know this, um, this might sound funny to some of you, but uh, YouTube is a great place to go. Um, there's a, a wonderful uh, channel. Now, I don't agree 100% with everything that they put out, but there is a YouTube channel called The Bible Project. And these, these are guys that make animated uh, not, not animated for children, but really animated for anybody, animated for adults. They make animated uh, videos uh, about various Bible topics, and one of the things that they have done is they have created um, summaries or overviews of every single book of the Bible, and each one is about five to seven or eight minutes long. Could you spare five or seven minutes to figure out what a book is about. You know, I don't know how many of you, can I just be honest and tell you, I go sometimes to the prophets, and I read Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and I read Ezekiel, and he's seeing a, a wheel within a wheel, and I, I mean, visions and things, and I'm going, what in the world am I reading? I'm just being honest. And resources like the Bible Project have been a great blessing to me because I can go to that and in about a space of six or seven or eight minutes, it gives you a snapshot of that entire book where you will get the setting, you will get the, what the author is intending to communicate and how the original audience would have received it. Wonderful resource. Check it out. Other things that you can do, get yourself a study Bible. If you don't have a good study Bible, uh, that means that's, that's not a Bible that just has the, the text in it, but it's a Bible that will often, most of them will give you an introduction to the book, and then it'll have study notes throughout. Um, <clears throat> but something like that. Um, okay, let me move on. 
we interpret. After we interpret, we translate and apply. We translate and apply. How is this God's word to me today? Now, there are some things that we read in Scripture that are universal. They are universal. In other words, they are for all times and for all people. Simple things like thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Those kinds of things. And those are pretty obvious because that's part of, really, that's part of the moral law that predates the Ten Commandments. It's contained in the Ten Commandments, but there is a moral law that predates the Ten Commandments. And, and that is the law that uh, God, when, when God spoke through the Apostle Paul, he said it's the law that, that even the Gentiles keep. That they don't have the law, but they keep that part of the law because it's written on their hearts. In other words, they know intuitively that there are some things that are wrong and some things that are right. There are other laws that are written in the Bible that are specific. Some things are culturally specific. For example, the dietary laws of the Jewish nation. So, well, Pastor, what did that have to do with anything? What that had to do with was God calling out a group of people, a nation for himself, and making them, showing them how to be distinct and uniquely his own people, special, different from all of the other nations of the world. That's what those culturally specific laws were about, the dietary laws. But the scripture is very clear. I think of, of uh, Peter's vision when God was calling Peter to go to the household of Cornelius. And you remember he saw the image of the, of the sheep being let down from heaven, filled with all kinds of animals, both clean and unclean. And the voice said, Peter, rise, kill and eat. And Peter said, no, 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 I've, I've not ever eaten anything unclean. Scripture is clear that those dietary laws and other laws that were culturally specific to the Jews no longer apply to us. And every time I eat bacon or barbecue, I thank the Lord. Don't you? There are some specific laws that God gave that though the specific application no longer applies to us, the, the specific law reflects a universal principle behind it. This was something that I was taught. It's called oopsa. You can, that's easy to remember. Can you say oopsa? Oopsa. U-P-S-A. Universal Principle Specific Application. There's one law, one commandment that we read about in our Old Testament that I can almost guarantee every one of us are, are in violation of. And that is that the, the Old Testament tells us that we are to have a parapet wall around the roof of our houses. How many of you have a parapet wall around the roof of your house? I don't. Does that mean we're in violation of the Scriptures? No, it doesn't, because what that was was a specific application. 
Because you see, in those days, their, their homes and houses were built with a flat-topped roof, and very often that space was used as an auxiliary room where, in nice weather, they could go up there, sometimes maybe even sleep up there where it was cooler out of doors or have meals up there. And so the law told them, in order to, to uh, reflect God's love for life and humanity, they were not to allow any condition to exist where they had control. Uh, they were not to allow any condition to exist that would endanger someone's life. So God said, you, you must build a parapet wall around the roof of your house. Now, there's a universal principle behind that. And that universal principle is that we value life. And wherever we have control, wherever we can do something about it, we do what we can to protect life. And that's the universal principle. There are other portions of the Scriptures that serve as signposts. In other words, we no longer practice uh, these things that the Bible teach us, but they are signposts to point us to something that's coming in the future. An example of that is the animal sacrifices, the, the sacrificial lambs that, that were the sacrifices that were made at Passover time, and then the daily, the, the morning and the evening sacrifices that were to serve as a, a, an atonement for the sins of the people. Aren't you glad we no longer do animal sacrifices when we come to church? Church would be a lot more messy. But those things served as signposts that point ahead and find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. How do we sum all of this up? Well, we sum it all up by looking to the law of love. You remember the one that came to Jesus and asked him, what is the first and greatest commandment? And Jesus answered his question twice. He, he gave him two answers. He said, well, the first is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, on all of these hang the law and the prophets. And I believe it was the Apostle Paul in some of his writings that say, all of the law, all of the commandments are, are fulfilled in this, that you love God and that you love your neighbor. So friends, anytime you're reading through the scripture and you're reading specific instructions, like I, you know, I, I'm not too concerned that um, if I could find the label, on my clothes, I'm sure I would find that it is made of blended fabrics. And you know, there are scriptures in the Old Testament that prohibit that. You're not supposed to wear blended fabrics. You're not supposed to, to boil a goat in its mother's milk. Now, I don't know anybody that really cares about that prohibition, but there, there it is. How do we figure out what we pay attention to and what we say, well, that was for that culture or that time. Look to the law of love. If you can fulfill the law of love, love God, love people, you'll be fine. How many of you know who this guy is? <clears throat> Hi-ho, silver. Yes, 
And that's what you're all hoping I will do soon. Go away, right? Just quickly, to wrap things up. In this matter of reading and studying our Bibles and applying it to our lives, it is important that none of us are Lone Ranger Christians. Now, there are some out there that do exist, and they have decided that somehow or another they have a corner on God's Word and on what it means and how to interpret it. And if your understanding differs from their understanding, well, then you're in trouble and you're wrong. And I, I hate to say this, but a lot of times when you find people like that, you also find that they, I, they have a tendency to isolate themselves from a body of believers. You see, friends, we find tr transformative truth from God's Word through reading it and applying it to our lives, one, as we are led by His Spirit. Reading and studying God's Word is not an academic exercise only, but it is something, it is a spiritual exercise, and it is something that we, as we engage in it, we must be praying and seeking God and saying, Oh God, would you enlighten me, uh, open my mind and my understanding, help me to understand what you're trying to say to me. And the second part about this is that we do it also in community. Yes, we need to be doing it on our own daily as we leave church, but we also do it in community with other people. And friends, if you get something from your Bible reading uh, that you've never heard of before and you've not ever heard preached or taught before, can I just give you a good suggestion? Before you take that real seriously, take that to church with you or to a Bible study somewhere and talk it over with your brothers and sisters that you are trying to live the Christian life with and see what they think about it. You see, one of the ways that we determine uh, orthodox, not just orthodoxy, that is what we believe, but orthopraxy. That is the universal practices of the Christian church is that we are not lone ranger Christians. We're not out on our own doing it on our own, but we are being led by the Spirit and we are also engaging in a, in a body of believers. Together we are studying and learning God's Word. And it is in that kind of setting that we find real transformation and it changes our lives. This story quickly in closing. On the stone wall of this building in Timisoara, Romania, hang a small plaque that proclaims in four languages, here began the revolution that felled a dictator. Nicolae Ceausescu had climbed his way through the Communist Party ranks until in early 1970s he became president of Romania. During his leadership there, the citizens of Romania, whose soil had been called the most fertile in all of Eastern Europe, began to starve. They shivered in long lines waiting to buy bread that had been laced with sawdust. 
meat, butter, sugar, oil, and other staples were strictly rationed and vegetables were scarce. This was happening while all the while Ceausescu and the top communist party leaders had difficulty keeping their cholesterol down. Ceausescu, uh, his greatest repressive fervor was reserved for the church and for Christians. He began by gaining control of the Romanian Orthodox Church. Deciding that compromise was a reasonable price to pay for existence, many priests and bishops entered the communist fold, and gradually other church denominations were suppressed as well. One man who had pastored the congregation of the Hungarian Reformed Church, which is housed in this building, uh, he was well known as a collaborator with the communists and even wore the red star of communism on his clerical vestments. With this pastor's blend of church and state, the membership of the church shrank to fewer than 50 people and services were reduced to mere ritual and there was no significant study of God's word or discipleship going on. But in 1987, that pastor had a fatal heart attack and died and a man named Laszlo Tokes became the pastor. He quickly grew in popularity, not only with the elderly in the congregation, but also with the young people that were a part of the nearby university. Laszlo Tokes, uh, the pastor here, mourned for his town and for his country. The hearts of the people had been chilled by secular communist ideologies, and he believed, though, that the church could warm those hearts again. So he began to reorganize the church. He ordered new hymn books and more Bibles, and young people were again taught the Bible beliefs of the church, and they, they were catechized and, and uh, grew in discipleship. Laszlo Tokes reviewed the dusty baptismal records of the previous pastor and went and began to reconnect with all of those people who had dropped out because of that former pastor's empty and ritualistic services. And right in the middle of a strict and severe communist regime in Romania, that church began to grow again and converts were being baptized and new tithes started coming in. And within two years' time, the membership roles of the Timisoara Hungarian Reformed Church swelled to 5,000 people. But all the while, the secret police of Romania and the church superiors collaborating with them knew that they could not allow this church to continue the way that it was. You see, freedom of religion was supposedly guaranteed to the people as a right. Yet, Laszlo Tokes' booming voice proclaiming the word of God from that pulpit echoed in their minds like a bad dream, and there was no place for passionate Christian faith in Ceausescu's Romania. Church members began to be threatened. Those who attended Sunday services had to run a gauntlet of secret police just to enter the building. Pastor Tokes was denied his ration book and could no longer buy the groceries that he needed for he and for his family. A friend of Pastor Tokes was found dead in a nearby park, which was reported as a suicide, but everybody knew that it wasn't. Then Pastor Tokes himself was attacked. Soon after that, the secret police acquired a court order to evict Pastor Tokes from his home, and uh, that uh, eviction was intended to take place on December 15, 1989. On December 10th, Pastor Tokes addressed his congregation and informed them of what was happening. 
He said that he did not intend to, um, to comply with the eviction, and so he would be taken by force. And he requested that his congregation show up to witness the forced eviction as a peaceful demonstration. On the appointed day, the secret police showed up but were not able to enter the building because the congregation had amassed themselves in front of the entrance to that church as a human shield. They stayed there throughout the day of December 15th, and word spread throughout the town of Timishwara, and the crowd continued to grow until it included believers of all different denominations, different languages, different congregations. Pastor Tokes opened an upstairs window and spoke to the people there, and though there were various languages, he spoke to them in a number of different languages, Hungarian and also Romanian, maybe Russian, and he said to them, we are one in Christ. We speak different languages, but we have the same Bible and the same God. We are one. This demonstration protesting the forced eviction of a Bible-believing and Bible-preaching pastor continued and grew until night fell and it turned into a candlelight vigil. And all night long, people stayed there. Just before dawn on December 17th, the secret police made their move. They broke into the church. Pastor Laszlo Tokes and his wife Edith took refuge in the sanctuary, standing in the front of the building near the communion table. Wrapped in his clerical robes, Pastor Tokes picked up a Bible and held it in front of himself like a shield or almost a weapon. But he was beaten and then taken away, beaten and bloodied. With their pastor now gone, that crowd of people that had been gathered there, moved to the central square of Timishwara. By now, armed troops and dogs and tanks filled the streets, but even with the army present, the people would not retreat. The communists responded with brute force the way they had always done, and they began to fire on the crowd, and hundreds were injured, many were killed, and some were maimed. Finally, on Christmas Eve... You remember this began December 15th. This kind of thing continued in Timishwara until on Christmas Eve, 1989, a colleague of Pastor Tokes, a Baptist pastor, Peter De Galescu, spoke to some 200,000 of his countrymen from the city's opera house balcony. <clears throat> pastor De Galescu, who had been summoned by the crowd, declared, to them for almost 45 years we have been told there is no god but i want to speak to you in the name of this god after he said that for several minutes thousands upon thousands of people in the square below began to shout and chant there is a god there is a god there is a god then degalescu led the citizens of timishwara in the lord's prayer no one had told the people to kneel but they did spontaneously and that Christmas Eve, the people of communist Romania prayed, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the next day, Christmas Day, 1989, Ceausescu's hated regime in Romania collapsed. You see, friends, when the Bible is brought to bear on the daily lives of people in a practical way, and God's people begin to pray and really mean Thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. It brings a transformative power to work in our lives like nothing else can. But it only happens as we take God's word, all of God's word, and say, God, what do you want me to do with this in my life? I'm willing to obey you. Now lead me and I will follow. Amen. Let's stand together, please.